Hi everyone and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry and this week we have gone full Somex with Jess, James and Belle joining me on the podcast. Jess, James, Belle, how have your weeks been? Very good, mate. Very good. Intense in a great way. Yeah, it's been good. It has been a week. It has been a week. Yeah, it's been a week, but we're here. (laughs) Yeah, been out and about been to London, done some things, seen some pit yeah, just usual stuff, but uh it's just nice being out in London actually. Like I I I do complain about it when it's coming round, like, oh I've got to go into London. But when you're there, I actually found myself to be incredibly productive, actually enjoyed meeting people. And um yeah. I say this I say this most weeks, like, oh should should commit to doing it once a week. Should commit to do it once a week. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. You live 26 minutes from Waterloo. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it's not, it's not a huge inconvenience. I know, if, but it, and all you do is sit down and then you, you sit down and when mm. you get up, you're in London. So like, it's just like sitting on a chair for 20 minutes <laughs> yeah, in so, my house. It's, but it's just like you appear in London afterwards. You drive to the station uh, as well. So you drive to the station sitting down, <laughs> sit on the train, probably sit on the platform in between. And then the office is about 80 seconds from yeah, where the station it's, is. It, it, it's an incredibly short, yeah, and, and late. Uh, way way of uh, yeah just complaining about a large distance yeah <laughs> that isn't really it's it's yeah. about 30 miles anyway anyone else uh, Belle how's your week been well I've not done any movement at all really I've been sat on my desk in Edinburgh no it's been absolutely beautiful here you started couch to 5k you have done nice. movement that's quite big yeah. yeah, in case in case the podcast cares, I have started Couch to 5K. Um, I started on week two because I thought, why not? Nice bold. Um, so yeah, I did seven lots of 90 second running with some walks in between. So Is that just, is that just couch? Week couch, one is yeah. just couch. <laughs> You're like, oh, I've completed yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Smashed it. They all, they all go between like walking and running at the beginning. But week one was just like, the walking nice. periods were just, I thought, quite long. So, yeah, this was 90 seconds of running, two minutes of walking, seven times, which was quite hard if you don't do any exercise like me. So I'm I'm starting starting here and I'm happy. It was good. Does it, I enjoyed it. Does it still have, like, the celebrity voiceovers being like, hey, you've just run your first mile? Yeah, I chose some sort of Scottish man. So I have yeah. some nice, like, dulcet tones in my Sounds ears. Um, I have... I did that years ago and I had Fern Cotton and I now hate Fern Cotton because I associate, <laughs> associate, her, oh, I associate her with knee pain. Oh, she seems to be lovely, fun. but she, she, she makes my knees fun. hurt. They have Sarah Minnikin, which I'm like, that just is not the vibe that you need when you'd want to motivate yourself. Just someone just being like, all right, love. <laughs> no. Sit down, have a cup of tea. Um, <laughs> anyway, Jess, how's your week been? You've been, you've been all over this week. I have. I've been all over this week. I have. I have been to uh, hear from BBC and ITV broadcast editors, which has been very cool. Took a jaunt up to Manchester. Uh, saw approximately 100 square metres of Manchester. All very lovely, um, which was great. But yeah, it's, it's been busy. I've, In contrast to James, I think I've been in London every day this week or somewhere else. Um, so yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to the weekend, but it's been a good one. Nice to see the team and, uh, yeah, hear from people doing cool things. 
Nice. All right, then, shall we crack on with this week's health tech news? First story this week comes to us from Forbes, from a, a lesser-known Forbes contributor, <laughs> uh, Dr. James Somaru. Uh, not someone I've heard of. Or... Who? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, uh, co- Who is it he? It says co-founder of Who is of this Soms. man? <laughs> Who does exactly. he think he is? Uh, co-founder of Somex. <laughs> co-founder of Somex, host of the Health Tech Podcast, uh, wearing an inappropriate hoodie for this podcast. Uh, yeah, don't amazing. Know. No idea, never heard of him. But he's been talking this. about YouTube health and uh, what he learned. Great James. to have you, James. Great to have you. <laughs> I pay everyone's wages here. This is just offensive. Oh, <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I write for Forbes, if anyone didn't. Well, I haven't written for like two, three years. Oh, what uh, a flex. Oh, God. What anyway, a flex. I know, I know, I know, I know. Anyway, so, yeah, started doing you it also, again. It, are you also the host of the Health Tip Podcast? I am also the host of the Health Tip Podcast. It's another <laughs> podcast that we do is called like this. Christ, this is terrible production value for anyone listening, so sorry about this. Um, all right, so, yeah, I went to YouTube. I went to YouTube because they were, they were talking about their YouTube health strategy. And first reflection is that not many people knew, including me, that there was this thing called YouTube health. So actually, there's a group of people uh, led by Vishal, uh, Varani in the UK, someone that I've known for quite a while, was previously at Ada Health, I believe, and a couple of other places. Um, yeah, he leads YouTube Health, a division of YouTube that is there to, uh, well, do a few different and very important things uh, in healthcare and health tech. So obviously, YouTube owned by Google. Um, so I think broadly sits under the Google health team, the YouTube health team, or at least work in partnership with. But they obviously are party to loads of health videos on YouTube, uh, about 180,000 of them last year, uh, I believe, uh, who, which got a combined total of 2 billion views. So 2 billion views on health-related content on that platform. Um, and some of the really interesting stats, like the average uh, adult will spend 70 minutes a day or something on YouTube looking at stuff. So there's some really interesting stats anyway. Um that really show that YouTube is a really big deal in health information. And when you consider who's got a stake in, you know, making sure that good information is spread around and crucially misinformation is not, uh, there's quite a few players, NHS England, uh, clinicians broadly, patients themselves, lots of other organizations like the Academy of Royal Colleges. Like there's, a lot of different organizations that care about information being correct, information being good. Um, and so, yeah, it was a great event that showed us all in the room. They invited a load of different creators. I assume I was there because of the podcast or falls or something. But the um, what they showed us all was their strategy. And the thing to pull out here is that they are working on this thing called the health shelf. And the health shelf is a, uh, I suppose, like a, practically speaking, it's a bit of YouTube that's returned when you search for stuff that's got a different colored background and you can scroll across it. And it's sort of marked as these videos are cool. These videos are good. These videos are verified. These videos are definitely good healthcare content. 
and they are picking specific creators and specific profiles to be on the health shelf. And they're working with Academy of uh, Medical Royal Colleges and NHS England and NHS Digital to figure out who the right creator should be. And actually, that's a huge public health service. It's an incredibly good thing to be doing to acknowledge that we all absorb healthcare information in different ways and 2 billion views of it on YouTube in a year. So actually, it's one of the most important places to get at from a public health perspective. There are creators that are clinicians, there are creators that are patients. And one of the really interesting things that they said um, was somebody asked about, uh, are they going to be just promoting uh, clinicians' content? And if so, how do you verify them? All these different things. But one thing that I thought was really really sensible and quite wise was someone said that and bear in mind their strategy is twofold they want to tackle misinformation but they want to up quality as part of upping quality they also want to foster community and belonging which i thought was really interesting and they do that largely through patient videos and so what one person said was i just thought this was great what they said was that you have to remember that good health information is not all evidence-based it's actually a lot of it is anecdotal. And so the individual patient and their experience is still relevant. So this exercise is not about taking all of the information on their tech platform and making sure that it's all evidence-based. No, it's not that. It's actually looking at the anecdotal information too that is useful and fosters belonging and gives emotional support and other types of support to those people watching it and they also have a very sensible plan to elevate that content as well so i thought i wrote all this up into that article i had some other learning points in there as well like but but broadly i just think it it was it was interesting to learn what they are doing i think all the comments that i've had since have been people not really knowing that that was even a thing um that youtube health was even a thing certainly not the health shelf or anything like that but i think I said in the article, I think it is a it's it feels like a big tech company getting it right because I think a lot of big tech projects have come and gone. Um, but YouTube has a responsibility because there is health information being shared that is impossible to stop now beyond a, a, a very radical uh, uh, intervention. So they've accepted their responsibility. They are behaving incredibly sensibly. And it is a global strategy. Um, and the final thing I will say, it was no surprise to me whatsoever to learn that YouTube Health is, the leadership of YouTube Health is clinicians. So Google Health uh, is run by Susan Thomas, uh, who was a geriatrician. Um, I believe uh, their global head of health, Garth, is a cardiologist, Vishal. So it's led by clinicians and clinicians as clinicians we have this internal alarm whenever we view content that's going public of like is this evidence-based is this you know does this need regulation in, in, in any way does this is this going to communicate the right things in the right way to the right people so we have that alarm internally and when you have leadership that appreciate uh entertainment and content and the desire to um, get messages out there as well as understanding innately the regulation side of things and the risk of certain information getting out and, and evidence and science. 
I think it, it's a really great combo from a leadership perspective. And so, um, yeah, kudos to the YouTube team um, for putting on a good event and doing really good things with their strategy. I think it was also really cool to see that um, I hadn't appreciated the extent of the medical YouTube or health YouTube community um, and the energy behind it, you know, seeing everyone's kind of takeaways and learnings and that sort of thing off the back of it. Not only is it way more extensive than I had appreciated, but people are genuinely very energized for it. Um, and I think that goes a long way to keeping the momentum going. Um, and I, I think also, you know, it's interesting to see from our perspective and what we're doing in marketing, that sort of thing, the value of different channels and the way that different information is communicated and specifically by whom. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing all the more that, you know, there is an inherent trust with clinicians and, you know, that is, is beneficial in many ways also to be taken with a pinch of salt. You know, there are lots of different clinicians out there providing different information but ultimately you know you're right in that you know it really should be and will be I think a a force for good what we're seeing is that we've known we've known that YouTube's been around for you know it's been around for decades now and it is where especially the younger generation go to to search for information and to find it in the first instance they will search in YouTube rather than via Google but I think what I found interesting, and I've really started to spot this in the last few weeks as well, is now that Google are pulling through those YouTube things. So the second you search anything, the first five hits in Google are embedded YouTube videos, which is pretty incredible, really. And I mean, it shows the the value of video and the value of that personal side where people are reflecting and um, and educating. But I think I think it's really really encouraging that youtube are taking this seriously because more people are going to stumble across these videos as a result of that so the older generation that do go to google rather than youtube in the first instance and are less used to combing through lots of clickbaity titles or things they realize that they have you know it's on them to ensure that those people find the right information for them and don't end up being suckered into something potentially damaging It's a good point, Val, that you make about the link between search and content there, because obviously, as you say, Google owns YouTube and therefore things that are searched on Google, YouTube things can come up first. That's actually something they did talk about. They did address this in, at least in part, when they were saying that um, the content that is created, they're, 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 they're trying to find what the most search things on i think they did it in the first instance through questionnaires and things about what people might find relevant but in my mind like the the link between what is being searched for and then what content can be created because they're linked to nhs digital they're linked to nhs england and those organizations are putting videos for example what does a good mole look like versus a bad mole and they knew that that was content that people i don't know if they knew that it was being searched for or if they used it in that way but they definitely did some sort of exercise to find out like what information do people want it's just not escaped me that you can definitely get that through search as well so whether they're going to make that link or not i don't know but um yeah it's it's a really interesting one because you can see you know from a population level the impact that that can have if it's a verified video from an nhs source 
that's going to give you that information in a very credible way and very succinct way. And actually those videos are good. They have good production value. They're not what you would expect necessarily from an NHS organization that gives out patient leaflets and things. It's not actually that, um, which is a point I think I need to make because I think people can have assumptions on that. Um, but yes, it, I, I think they are good videos. They are good videos um, with great content. And so, yeah, thinking about the link between a population level, what information do people want? And then the ability to then show them that information that's correct. I think in terms of tackling misinformation and influencing behavior change and things, I think it's a, it's an incredibly important thing to get right. Um, yeah. Propaganda messaging and all the rest of it aside and the uh, capacity for evil. From a, a legal point of view, uh, I should point out that we advocate taking medical advice from qualified clinicians and not the internet. <laughs> if they're on the health shelf, though. Does the NHS have a YouTube channel? Yeah. It must. Yeah. yeah I assume, uh, NHSX, NHSX had a really good YouTube channel that uh, mm. had a lot of a lot of their webinars were on there, but cut really short. So you could just watch like a three minute summary. Um, and nice. then, of course, they disappeared. So, <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's move on from YouTube. We're going to. We're going to look at some drugs now. Next story is from Crunchbase. Psychedelic therapy is now legal in Oregon. Uh, are investors and startups ready? And when is the Somex trip to Oregon? Bell, <laughs> you've been looking at psychedelics in Oregon. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for a Somex trip to Oregon, if I'm honest. Better get ready, Bell. Well, this article is about psychedelics, so that's a whole other trip. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Crunchbase asks, um, are investors and startups ready for psychedelic therapy now that it is legal in Oregon? So whatever your views are on psychedelics in a recreational setting, they offer a really exciting route in therapeutic development. We've seen lots of exciting startups in the psychedelic space, but Crunchbase asks in this article, um, well, they say that it's investment infrastructure and policy which will determine whether these therapies sink or swim. Now, a big holdup in the US at the moment has been the FDA. So obviously for any sort of therapeutic development, most startups or most drug developers go via the FDA approval route. And with the psychedelics being sort of a new space, they haven't yet they haven't yet approved any of these therapies. And it's really sort of put a stopper to the development of these. Um, but what we're seeing in the US, um, which I think is quite exciting, is US states sort of taking matters into their own hands. So Crunchbase says that Oregon and potentially soon to be California and Colorado as well, has actually passed their own laws approving the legal use of um, psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms in a therapeutic setting. Um, and this means that under the guidance of a therapist, adults can consume hallucinogenic mushrooms to reach their mental health goals. So I think this is really, really interesting. Firstly, I mean, the US is crazy and that it is so fragmented into states and stuff so you see such wildly different things from state to state um but also this kind of raises a few questions as to what will actually help get these mushrooms or other therapeutics to people that could actually benefit from them and i think what's interesting here is we've got the law being one thing so yes it's now legal for people to seek that but as we've seen with the legalization of um, medicinal cannabis over here, it being legal doesn't necessarily mean that people get access to it very quickly because you've still got doctors that are 
hesitant to prescribe it or the actual process of prescribing it is so lengthy and difficult. And I think the same sort of thing is going to happen over there. Um, and Crunchbase actually raised two sort of really pertinent points as to what's really going to help get these therapies to people. And one is money and the other is training. Now, money obviously makes the world go around, but we've seen lots and lots of funding into big pharma and these these are the companies going for the more traditional fda route like you can't have a pharmaceutical company have a non-fda approved therapy so it's actually the smaller more nimble sort of telehealth startups and working in the mental health space that are going to benefit from this legal well, legality the most um and they are the they are the the ones that obviously lack the money to actually do that um and also these therapies are expensive they're new they're novel so for the patient access is going to be an issue um that's something that we see across the board um and then also this oregon law as i sort of said means that you have to take them under the guidance of a therapist and there are very few trained therapists that are you know able to you know use psychedelics with you or have the training to be able to recognize when you are reacting well and when that's normal to when you're not so that's also an investment as well which um which is also just really interesting so i think what we're seeing here is a really exciting space loads and loads of really cool stuff and we're starting to see that people recognize that in, in lieu of FDA approval of these more traditional regulatory pathways, there are other routes to it. But the big, big, big question, as always, is how do we actually get people using this? And what can we do to support that? Um, Jessica, I know you've got lots of thoughts on this as well about kind of patient access to things. What do you think? This is a state law rather than a federal law. And psilocybin, magic mushrooms are still classed as an illegal substance, which means that it can't go through FDA approval. So I think it, it does raise interesting points around the policy changes that we need to see in order for these kinds of innovative therapies to make their way to patients. But also what it was saying is that because it can't get the FDA approval and because it's still considered to be an illegal substance, it means that people who would obviously in the US it's uh, an insurance based healthcare model. So people who are accessing treatment via their insurance wouldn't be able to access these kinds of therapies through their insurance. It just wouldn't be reimbursed. Um, and therefore, much like we see, as you said, Bell, across other innovative medicines, be it cell therapy, gene therapy, all of those kinds of personalized medicines that are highly innovative, highly personalized, require a huge amount of deep science behind them in terms of the manufacturing, the production, the development. Um, they are the the number of people who could benefit and the number of people who are actually able to access them is there's a huge disparity between that and so it's interesting to me that what we're seeing here in this commentary is actually it it's very much speaks in parallel to what we're seeing across other sectors in healthcare that are doing very innovative things to get you know potentially life-changing life-saving treatments to patients and then the, the biggest barrier that is preventing that access actually remains cost and and policy is part of that too um so yeah i i think you know coming from a period of time where you know psychedelics were you know highly criminalized highly demonized 
um, and talked of very, very negatively right across, I guess, the cultural zeitgeist to now shifting where we're seeing these commentaries where psychedelics are sharing the same narrative as healthcare at large, I think goes to show that actually we're moving to a place where it's likely to become more commonplace and people I think are more open to not necessarily alternative, I wouldn't necessarily consider it an alternative medicine, but different types of treatment where perhaps traditional approaches haven't worked. Um, And I think that that's really exciting and encouraging. And, you know, I'd be interested to see where this conversation goes in maybe five years time where, you know, we've been through several political cycles and actually maybe some of that policy and legislation has started to change. And the access story is a more positive one. Okay, nice. Well, that was drugs in Oregon. Uh, Let's have a look at the next story. Okay, next story comes to us from our friends at Sifted. And this is December's Hottest Seeds. Uh, I'll, I'll start on this one, as is, as is traditional now. Um, usually, we're in the top two. And if we're not first, we're second uh, behind, behind fintech, which is, you know, not okay, but fine because it's finance people giving other finance people money. And that's sort of fine. Um, we're fifth. We're, we're behind food tech. Narrator, it's not fine. It's not. We're behind food tech's not a thing. <laughs> like, you can't, there's no AI fish fingers. Like, no one's doing VR vegetables. This is nonsense. And we, uh, frankly, if health tech industry as a concept, you are listening to this, pull your finger out. Uh, because if I have to do this in February and I'm reading that we're behind, I don't know, health tech and, I don't know, chair tech or some other nonsense industry... I will be I'll be apoplectic, which is a word that I had to Google this morning, but which I've now used three times once whilst emailing every the delivery company. Uh, so, yeah, not OK. Let's let's get more money, please. Um, it's it's only fair, probably. That's all I have to say on that. I don't know if anyone else is as incensed as I am or even cares. Food tech, food, food tech. It's funny, like it's often um used as an example of like uh things we don't need which is like another 15 minute delivery startup you know uh, i imagine they're doing some mm. some interesting things with uh, oh, agriculture right agritech that's the thing i had such an interesting conversation about food tech the other day with um with farlan who's the co-founder of ori biotech who are a cell and gene therapy company and he was saying that when he used to work in academia, lots of his students now work in the food tech environment because they're basically making lab-grown meat products. And it's a huge, huge, huge thing that takes lots of money, lots of time, and is super interesting because when you make meat, you have to obviously grab stem cells. It's the same technology that powers other sorts of cell and gene therapy. You take a stem cell and you choose what it grows into. So you have to choose that it makes muscle cells or blood cells and you have to give it blood flow if you want it to look like an actual steak and it's really really interesting so my money is in food tech. <laughs> <laughs> you can find bell on next week's food tech pigeon podcast uh, where she'll be talking about how to make steak bleed um sorry oh. if there are any 
It's super interesting. Super I'm, interesting. I'm sure that there are many great people, companies and investors involved in food tech, but there won't be anyone to eat the food tech food if we don't invest in health tech. You're not wrong. So To be fair, wrong. there is a company called Myota that sits at the intersection of food tech and health tech, producing precision fiber, which basically, you know, to help your gut microbiome, et cetera, et cetera, based oh, well, it's created by a, a computational biologist. Yeah, they're doing really cool things across health tech and food tech, looking at the application of the right kind of fiber in your diet for different health outcomes and supporting different people, different conditions. So maybe, maybe, Henry, maybe, and this is... I'm wrong. I'm just wrong. a theory. No, it's not that you're wrong. It's just that some of <laughs> the investment that food tech has seen actually is is ha- sneaky health tech investment. It's just not been cas- counted in that nice. category. I've miscategorized. So maybe maybe miscategorized. it's not as... Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's not as bad as you think it is. I like that. That's a nice positive uh, weekend angle. I like it. Uh, just just in case we want to kind of branch out, uh, I have Googled food tech pigeon is not a thing. Uh, but one of the first things that happens when you Google it is it comes up with a, a query, can I eat pigeon? So that's fine. <laughs> um, Delicious. Delicious. Wood pigeon. Wood pigeon, delicious. Don't just find pigeons out on the street and eat them. We don't advocate that in any way. No, absolutely not. I'll do nothing for I'm your microbiome. I'm monkey pigeon with two, one leg and one wing. <laughs> you will need my otter then. This has all gone weird. Let's move on. Next story is, uh, it's not actually a story. This is a just giving page uh, from someone that a few of us have spoken to here at Summix and has come up with a really, really good idea. Connecting clinicians over coffee. Uh, This is a project from Anna Starostina. Um, James, you've been involved in this one as I believe you're referring to it as a (laughs) micro-investor. I've never said that, but this has been forced upon me. It's not like, <laughs> oh, I bet you think you're an investor now. You're going to put angel investor on your LinkedIn. You're going to do all this stuff. Like, oh my God. All I did was give like, a bit of money for like this idea. And it's just like, oh, the backlash has been uh, quite amusing. James single-handedly propping up the health tech seed round. On, on Literally, your- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, writes for Forbes, thinks he can like invest in everything. Yeah. The, the, to the, be clear, the I, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping on this bandwagon and going to claim that I'm also a co-investor on that basis. So oh, I'll here we take go. it. Yeah, I'll put it on we've, we've started calling him seed round Somaru internally and uh, it's not a fan. <laughs> I w- I, I'm not looking forward to the volume of emails that I will get uh, after adding angel investor to the uh, to the LinkedIn, so that will not be happening. Nor am I at all claiming that I'm an angel investor. By the way, uh, so just to get that clear, do not do not message just me. Like I'm not a micro investor. Do not message me with your pitch decks just yet. Anyway, uh, perhaps in the future, micro micro angel. Perhaps. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's talk about Anna's Anna's idea. Is <laughs> let's talk about Anna's project because this is a really good idea. It is no, it is, and and that's why. That she was looking for money. She's looking for a couple hundred quid to like help her launch this app. Um, and it, she is a medical student, fourth year medical student, I believe, and um, has talked to a lot of junior doctors that and medical students, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And because junior doctors rotate a lot, they, they we, we move around uh, hospitals frequently. We move around regions frequently. We move around areas within those regions frequently. So we're always on the move for the, for for our rotations, and so it can be lonely. 
it can you, you can feel isolated and ironically the bigger the hospital that you're in often the more isolated you are and the more isolated you feel because the more likely you are to be in separate teams and never work with the same people on call and and your firm in inverted commas might not really be a firm it might be a super firm which means you've got three times the amount of people on it that you see you know a third of a third as much so it can it can be you know especially when you first move to a place a time where you can uh, along with the the difficulty of the job the the physical stress the emotional stress the, the the mental stress like along with all of that you can end up just feeling a bit alone and sometimes you just want to go into the canteen and just have a chat to someone and what her app uh, the app that she wants to launch is exactly that it's um coffee and connect i believe i think was the phrase um yeah but yeah so she she you, you go on this app you say hey i'm free anyone about and there are people on there that will just have a chat to you you can, you can message within the app to talk as well um and it's to make friends network get support support each other um and just get to know the people in your hospital. It's a really simple idea. It's she's in she, well, she's at Nottingham Medical School, the same as me, uh, where where I went. So you know, there's a bit of nostalgia there and wanting to give back a little bit in in my mind as well, which is nice. I can visualise where this is going to go in the QMC or at Derby or all those different places. So it just it, it, it was just a nice thing that I I saw it on LinkedIn and just thought, hey, you know what. I would love to see something like that help a couple of people. So why not? Um, so we are going to support her to launch the app uh, and pay for some costs associated with that. She's also raising a bit more money, like a true a true crowd funder, um, to just get a bit of money for marketing, um, which she is halfway on the way to. So if this is something that anybody listening is keen on, then um, yeah, you can head over to just giving page but henry you chatted to her yesterday i think didn't you? yeah and i have to say obviously we speak to lots of people in health tech and lots of people who are really passionate about their ideas but this is i think i put in pigeon like sometimes the simplest ideas are the most impactful and i think this is one of those things that there are lots of people out there trying to solve great big ugly problems of integration and of you know the graying population pyramid and things but actually communication in anything is so important and one of the things Anna and I were talking about is how valuable this could be when it moves beyond clinicians and you just have people in administrative and managerial roles just grabbing coffee with a clinician because we hear so often about things like well the management have said xyz is happening but actually on the ground at ward level that doesn't work and we can't do that we don't have the time to do that there's no administrative time to to do whatever this new process that's been put in place so just those little making those little yeah those little connections little synapses within a trust where you've got someone who works in policy or in procurement or whatever it is talking to someone who's doing the job day to day and might not necessarily be the person on the board of the procurement team who are who are the clinic, clinical representative, those things are so impactful and so difficult to do without without support and without you know technology like this. Because you're not just gonna walk in, you're not gonna walk into the procurement office and be like, anyone for a latte, because they'll tell you to go away. So this is a I think a really, really potentially powerful idea. It sounds a little bit like um there's an app called Peanuts, which is for uh new moms and pregnant women to connect with other women going through the same experience uh, which 
I think it came out during lockdown because that was a really lonely experience and you know you can go out and I guess build those communities that you normally would going to like parent groups and NCT and all of that kind of thing um but I think it, it really goes to show just how important that human connection is and I think especially at a time like now where we're seeing people in the NHS and yes clinicians predominantly but not just clinicians feeling so deeply unhappy with the situation in which they find themselves with the environment that they're working in something like this can go a really long way to building camaraderie and just making you feel less alone and making it feel that little bit less rubbish um and when it's good you have people to share the good times with as well and i think you know james you'll know this better than anyone you know i i haven't been a clinician but i can imagine that even at the best of times you know there's a roller coaster there's difficult things that you and experiences that you go through that actually you'd benefit from just sharing that with someone who gets it and understands it so i think it's a great idea i love it it's uh while we've been talking i've uh, i've invested 25 pounds of my own uh making me a micro micro angel investor and uh excited to see where this goes nice good for you man i think yeah for for me it's it's funny where where, where you have where you have choice of what you want to give your time or your money or or whatever it is when you're when you when you have the choice of what you want to give it to the reason i think i just on a whim just decided to do this was because i think it reflected values that i hold and so to your point jess about and, and henry actually both of you about connection and about bridging gaps beyond the clinical so I was that person who knocked on the door of finance and asked to shadow someone. And we wrote a business case together for to improve something in the hospital. And that's what that connection led to. It led to a business case being dropped down to, to lease a new blood culture analyzer that was going to get babies home quicker. And I actually found that the day I, I looked for it in my, um, in my inbox. I actually read the business case. It's pretty good. And 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 like I was a junior doctor at the time, and and like so you write for Forbes, you do the health tech podcast, <laughs> damn good business case, unbelievable, what a man, damn good business case for for a junior doctor, damn good. I mean, it was because Linda wrote it, who was the, who was in finance, really. Um, I think is the main reason it was good, um, but impressive nonetheless, and 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 a nice trip down memory lane to actually to actually remember, like yeah, it was about, but it was more about the connection. It was more about bridging the gap between like them and us with managers and clinicians. I think that is a really big deal. It's a really big deal to talk about in the health tech context of um, if you if you want to get change, then everybody needs to be on board. And without those bridges of communication, one side doesn't understand the other, and then there's no empathy, and then there's no understanding. There's no way of getting to the solution as quickly because of these barriers so yeah anyway broadly yeah aligned with my values i i I like uh yeah i don't like communication barriers i like them all to be to be smashed down and i like people getting the support when they need it so good luck to anna Final story comes to us from Forbes as well. Microsoft is aggressively investing in healthcare AI. Bell, this is a, an area that you're very interested in. Tell us a little bit more about Microsoft's aggressive investment. <laughs> well, any sort of aggressive investment is exciting from a title point of view. Um, but yeah, I think the last few years and even decades, to be honest, we've seen lots of the you know the big tech companies pivot into healthcare and health tech. 
We've seen Google, who are obviously investing hugely in sort of AI and natural language models. They obviously released their medical version of ChatGPT the other day. We've got Apple, who have a huge focus on sort of consumer health tech. They've obviously got the Apple Watch, lots and lots of research and um, investment going on there. Um, and now Microsoft are sort of jumping in with both feet. Um, and yeah, from, from a physical point of view, Microsoft have been on the scene for quite a while. They've got their sort of flagship HoloLens, which is their virtual reality headset. And that's got huge, huge implications in sort of surgical and medical planning and training, especially now where we've obviously got this healthcare crisis going on. People maybe can't get into theatre to train beforehand. They can use virtual reality to run themselves through surgeries before they even get a chance to set into the theatre. So they can really sort of feel confident going in that they know what they're doing and they know what to expect, which I think is is huge. Um, but more importantly, or more excitingly, rather, the Forbes article mentions that Microsoft have started partnering with lots of smaller startups, um, bringing their clout, bringing their partnerships, bringing their money to these tiny startups working in really, really novel spaces. Um, they mentioned Page as a startup here, but they've obviously got lots and lots of different sorts of startups. And the focus here is, is pretty broad. I think they're basically treating it like you would an angel investor doing lots of seed rounds. They're investing into lots of these companies and seeing which ones fly. Um, and they've got research into diagnostics, researching novel biomarkers, all these sorts of things, which are going to have huge implications from a medical point of view. Um, but the niche, niche expertise that these highly, highly expert teams at startups have, but supported by the big Microsoft corporate machine. Um, so, yeah, I think this is exciting from both points of view, really. I think we see this a lot when we talk about pharma and small startups developing kind of maybe competitor drugs and things like this or competitive therapies. And I think the similar things happening here, when you've got big companies like Microsoft, they often don't have the in-house expertise to do things on a very nimble fashion. They obviously have lots and lots of actual scientific expertise, but they don't necessarily have the support to move quickly in lots of different directions. Whereas these startups do, that's how they're built. They're fast, they're nimble, they're reactive. Um, they can see what the general appetite for things are and they can move around far more quickly because they're less entrenched in what they do and what they don't. So I think this is really exciting from Microsoft's point of view because it's bringing that expertise in a house. Um, and I think it's really, really exciting from a startup point of view. We're now you know, imagine you had a startup doing a cool thing and you know that Microsoft is there ready to back you, ready to introduce you to the investors or the partners or the distributors that you might need for your therapeutic. So, yeah, really, really exciting stuff, I think. And I hope that the other big tech companies follow suit and I hope we see some really good stuff out of it because good things can only happen from collaboration as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, what a lovely sentiment. I <laughs> mean, if we don't finish on that, everything's just going to go downhill. I think it's especially nice at a t to, to see this kind of news at a time where big tech is slightly under fire. There's clearly a lot of challenges going on in that space. And I think to see this kind of investment at grassroots level and uh, I guess, as you say, Bell, the support and the collaboration, I think, you know, it's a nice news story to read. Um, and it's obviously great for the industry, but it's nice to see those positive stories at a time that feels a bit doom and gloom. 
That's an incredibly positive note to end on. This isn't very Health Tech Pigeon. I like it. Look, that, that was the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Uh, thanks a lot, everyone, for joining. Um, we've analysed the health tech news so you don't have to. Join us next week uh, where we have one Hugh Harvey on the podcast, I believe. Uh, and indeed, from Hardy and Health. Check out all the articles we've talked about and some of the best jobs, events and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com or on our socials. Mm-hmm.